Okay, before we study God's word together, let's pray and ask him to illuminate it for us. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful service already. And we're just now to the point where we're going to look into your word. I pray that this would be the climax of our morning, that it would be uh, just wonderful, that we would hear your voice, that we would see your glory. Help me to explain it clearly and simply. Lord, my prayer has been all week that we would all just be captivated by Jesus as we meditate on baptism. That we'd be untied from the ropes that have been around our minds and hearts all week and be bound up instead in Jesus. That we'd be completely freed from the concerns that bind our thoughts and our desires and thoroughly absorbed in the meditation and adoration of Jesus. Lord, won't you please make that happen? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is in the book of Colossians. If you'd like to follow along, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And if you would... To honor the reading of God's word, if you're able, would you please stand as we read this passage, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And we're so grateful that we have God's word this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Now, primarily, we're going to deal with verses 11 through 14, but we need the context of verses 8 through 10 to to really get it. So we're going to spend a little time getting that context together. Paul begins this passage, and we are going to move toward baptism. That is what we're going to talk about today. But he begins this passage with a warning. Did you see the warning there in verse 8? He warns, see to it that no one takes you captive. There, there is a very real danger of being captured by something. Of being captured through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world. He's talking about godless human wisdom. Godless ways of thinking. For instance, godless worldviews, godless religions, godless... Moralism. 
All these things stretch out like trappers' nets in our textbooks, in our television, everywhere you look. Godless ways of thinking. They're not just foolish, they're dangerous. They can capture you, take you in, bind you up, take away your freedom. He says empty deception. That word empty deception, it refers to ideas that are both futile and false. They're both misleading and hollow. And we follow these ideas around like like bubbles. And we follow it around until it pops and we realize we don't know where we are anymore. I've got, I thought of the perfect example. Maybe not all of you can relate to this. But I think the perfect example of this empty deception in the world is the media's presentation of what beauty is. Now follow with me here. Fake, photoshopped, airbrushed, plastic surgeried people smile at us from billboards and magazines and movie screens. And we chase after it. Women chase after it. They want to be it. And men chase after it. They want to have it. And then it pops and they realize it was never even real to begin with. And it was misleading because it never even really offered the happiness that you thought it did. Or take money. We've chased money thinking it promised certain things. And now the bubble is popping all around us. And we realize it really didn't offer us any of the security we thought it did. And we don't know how to get back. We've built our whole lives around things that now are gone, and we don't know how to get back. Empty deception. Paul says, don't get caught up in these things. I want you to think about what empty deceptions are you chasing? What bubbles are you chasing around in your life? Don't get caught up in that. People get caught up in philosophies and deceptions based on traditions and principles of the world rather than the philosophies and truths according to Christ. So the warning here that sparks this whole passage that we're going to get into about baptism is don't be captured by empty ideas. Instead, be captivated by Jesus. Don't be captured by empty ideas. Instead, be captivated by Jesus Christ. So that's why my prayer has been that that we would be captivated by him. That we wouldn't just listen to a sermon, but that we would find him captivating through God's word this morning. I'm hoping that miracle takes place. Why? Why should we be captivated by Jesus? He explains. He goes further. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Basically, he is the ultimate undercover boss. How many of you have seen Undercover Boss? Okay, a good many of you. I need to thank Marie for telling me about Undercover Boss. I think it was you who first told me about it. Um, She was a great show, and I've watched it a couple times, and it's kind of a tearjerker at the end. Um, I mean, I don't cry because I'm I'm so overwhelmingly masculine, but some people might cry. And it moves you because the boss comes down, and he works with the lowly employees and he sees what it's like and he's getting dirt under his fingernails and then at the end he makes all their dreams come true. Now that moves us, I think, for a reason. Because that's sort of a little little tiny sliver of the greater reality that God came all the way down here in the form of Jesus Christ and he lived with us and he worked with us and he faced all the temptations that we face. 
And then only to find out, wow, that was God the whole time. And then through his death, which is way further than any of those undercover bosses have ever gone on any episodes I've seen, he actually died for us. Through that offers us everything. So be captivated by Jesus. Don't be captured by this little these little bubbles that float by. And I feel like I'm always picking on Oprah. It's just the first name I can think of. These little things that the world holds out and says, here's some, something that will bring you happiness. And we oh, follow it. And it pops and we're lost. But Jesus will not ever pop like that. Be captivated by Jesus. And I pray that I, that I will be captivated by Jesus. This passage has been working on me all week. Now, he goes even further, and this is more to the point of the sermon today. All these reasons to be captivated by Jesus, rather than the empty ideas of the world. And then in verse 11, and another reason to be captivated by Jesus, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, I know you guys are waiting for me to get to what this has to do with baptism. Scripturally, baptism and circumcision run very parallel, and they're very connected. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand fully the connection between the two. They're very big ideas. But scripturally, circumcision and baptism run parallel, and they're very connected. So circumcision was, for Israel, the, the outward physical sign Make sure I say this right here. It was the outward physical sign of the inward spiritual covenant between God and his chosen people, Israel. Circumcision was the outward physical sign of the inward spiritual covenant between God and his chosen people, Israel. It was the removal of a certain bit of skin that signified identification with God and his covenant people. Now, baptism, baptism is the outward physical sign of the new inward spiritual covenant between God and his chosen people, Christians. Okay, are you, are you following me so far? I know this is getting wordy. Circumcision was the outward physical sign of the inward covenant between God and his people, Israel. Baptism is the outward physical sign of the inward spiritual new covenant between God and his people through Jesus Christ. See the parallel? I hope you're hanging with me. It's immersion underwater, raising back up, and it signifies identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what baptism is. Now, in the Old Covenant, people entered into that covenant through birth. That's mainly how new people entered into the covenant. So you circumcised your children, and it was the sign of, yes, they're entering into the covenant. Now, the reason we don't baptize or sprinkle infants is because now people enter the covenant in a different way. And I'm grateful to to John Piper has helped me understand this better. Now people enter the covenant through accepting Christ, giving themselves over. It's a new birth. That's why we don't sprinkle and baptize children here, at least at this church, and I'm pretty sure that's why denominationally we don't. Because it's based on a decision and a new birth that happens at all different ages. So both are done physically with hands. But note, if you look for it, you'll see all along, God has been primarily concerned with the inward 
the invisible, the spiritual aspect of this covenant. Not the outward physical act. And I've got some scriptures to prove it to you. In case you just plain flat out don't believe me. Deuteronomy 10.16. God says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Deuteronomy 36 says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. In other words, the outward physical sign of the covenant is completely meaningless except insofar as it's connected with the inward spiritual change entering into the new covenant. The outward sign of the circumcision means nothing. It's the heart circumcision that God has always been after. He doesn't want just external religious acts. He wants internal spiritual change. And then the act follows naturally. That's why I take baptism really seriously when I talk to people. Because it's really, really important. And it's really important that we understand that it's not that dunking under that makes the difference. I'm getting ahead of myself. The problem is we can't We can't make this spiritual change happen inside ourselves. We can't change our hearts from this stiff-necked disobedience to a soft-hearted desire to obey God. We can't just change our hearts. But we have to. God demands it. He says we must change our hearts from disregard to desire for God. And if we do not, we're doomed to experience God's unquenchable fiery explosion of wrath. Did y'all catch that in that Jeremiah verse? The stakes are high. This is, this is for you and for me to think about seriously because the stakes are high. If we don't figure out this, this interior heart change, we will experience God's fiery, unquenchable explosion of wrath. We must circumcise our hearts. The only one qualified for this kind of heart surgery is... Yes. Jesus is the only one qualified to do this kind of heart surgery. If you want to go get a physical, you can go to any doctor. It doesn't matter. You can go to the guy in the van at the gas station. Don't, I'm kidding. Do not go get a physical from the, guy, the doctor in the van at a gas station. If you're just going for a physical, though, it doesn't matter. But if you're going for brain surgery, you want to find the best, the most qualified surgeon. The more important, the more that's at stake, the more you have to look for the most qualified person. You don't want the guy who, fresh out of med school, this is his first crack at a human brain, who's going to get in there and be like, whoa, look at that. That's neat. I've never seen that. The, the higher the stakes the more important it is to find the right surgeon. Now, there are no higher stakes than what I just said, experiencing the fiery, unquenchable explosion of wrath from God. And there is no more intricate surgery than this heart change that has to happen. And Jesus is the only one qualified to do it.
So that is why we are, well, intolerant is probably not the right word. But that's why we preach Jesus as the only way. He's the only one that can solve our biggest problem. We can probably find some moral direction from other religious figures. Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. We could probably find some moral guidance. But we cannot find heart change necessary to avoid death and destruction. That only comes from Jesus Christ. So what is this circumcision, this this inside, invisible circumcision exactly? Paul explains... He says, in him, meaning Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The removal of the body of the flesh. Do you know what the body of the flesh is? Biblically, do you know what flesh usually is talking about? Usually it's talking about that part of you that is infected by sin. The part of you that is infected by sin He's saying, Jesus cut that out. Christians, Jesus cut that part of you out. That part must be cut out if you want to live. Okay, and then he keeps explaining, and this is where it gets really connected with baptism. He says, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, and then in verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Christians, those of you who are Christians, who who have seen your sin, totally given up your hope to Christ for salvation, acceptance before God, forgiveness, totally committed to him as your Lord, your body of flesh has been buried with Christ. It's entombed. It's gone. It's been buried. That's what I envision when I baptize someone. Again, it's not the water baptism that changes people, but I envision when you're down there, when you come back up, that body of flesh is just left behind. It's gone. Buried. That means you no longer have to sin, doesn't it? If your body of flesh, that part of you infected by sin, has been taken care of and cut off and removed, doesn't that mean that you're not a slave to it anymore? You don't have to anymore? You don't have to do these things that you know are wrong and you hate, but you you do? Isn't that what it means? Some of you should be burning with this question right now. I mean, yeah, if that's true, I see the logic, then why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep exploding in anger? At the smallest thing. Why do I keep, I don't know what it is, being lazy, I can't find a work ethic. Why, why do I keep looking at these lustful things I know I shouldn't? Why do I keep coveting things that I know I should be content, but I want what they have? If the body of the flesh was removed in this inward baptism, why do we keep sinning? I'll just give you the illustration, and maybe when I post the sermon online, I could give all the scripture. Um, Think of a tree out in the woods, and this tree is a a good-sized tree, and from the ground around the perimeter of the tree, these thick, leafy, 
parasitic vines have grown up all, all around the tree, wrapped all around the trunk, all around the limbs, intertwined with themselves, thick, leafy, parasitic vine on this tree. It's choking the tree, it's killing the tree. Now Jesus comes and he severs that vine by the roots and just pulls those roots out of the ground, throws them away forever. But the vines remaining on the tree, it takes time for those to dry and to wither and to release their hold on the tree and to start to fall off. And basically, biblically, I think that's how it works. I think it was a very real change that happened in you when Christ saved you. I think he severed those roots of sin. I think he pulled those things out. And now our whole lives are dealing with the remnant that remains stuck to us. Our whole lives are trying to feed the tree and not those vines. Let them dry up. Let them die. You've been delivered from them. The body of flesh is gone. Now I need to hurry because I'm not done. The new you who lives by faith in God gets raised up to new life. Again, that's, just, that's what I picture in baptism. I'm, I'm putting that flesh under and I'm pulling up the new you that has faith in God for salvation. Now he goes on and he explains this spiritual change further. Before the inward baptism, he says, You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were suffocating underneath that, that vine wrapped all around you. But Jesus made us alive together through forgiveness. Okay, this is all this is the only this is the only thing I'm going to share to finish here. I hope some of you are questioning something else. I hope this is raising a question to some of you. Well, why don't I feel different? You know, I, I think some folks that get baptized think that after that water dip, they should just feel like, ah. but it doesn't always happen. And I can't answer all that right now, but let me tell you how I think that this probably should feel most of the time and in my experience. I think that it feels like death and rebirth. Both are unpleasant. Probably shouldn't throw that out there when it's like time to wrap up the sermon, but biblically, I think it feels like a death and a rebirth. Now let's just think about birth. How many babies have you ever seen come from the womb with like a pleasant smile on their face? This, this is a huge internal thing that happens. And the part of you, the sin part that gets chopped off, that is a real part of you. And it hurts to get a part of you chopped off. Now maybe some of that's coming from my own experience. Um, for me, I think... Well, I'm trying to say this carefully. There was a time in my life when I went through excruciating, crushing conviction of sin, gut-wrenching confession of sin, and supernaturally enabled repentance of sin. And it was the most painful time in my entire life. But it was during that and after that that I could see the biggest work God has ever done in my heart. And I guess I share that in all of this to maybe adjust our expectations of what things should feel like as this sin is cut from our lives and new life is given. It may not be pleasant all the time.
Conviction, confession, repentance of sin may be more painful than anything you've ever experienced, but forgiveness is more precious than all the diamonds in the world. The forgiveness that we get in Christ is more precious than anything. Paul writes, Having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile toward us, he's taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. Many of you have financial debt. Come up here and and tell everybody how much debt you have. One by one. Many of you have financial... Many of you have financial debt. And you know how crushing that is. And it feels very real. And you wake up thinking about it. This is an important point here, so I have to regain myself. I have no way, no words to make you feel your spiritual debt because it's so intangible. But just trust me when I say it is infinitely more real and permanent than whatever your financial debt is. Let's just say, worst case scenario, your debt is going to hound you, plague you, for the rest of your life. Make your life miserable. When you die, it's gone. That debt's gone. In this vapor's breath of a life that we have, that debt will be gone. But your spiritual, intangible debt with God is eternal. And Jesus will cancel it out. That person raised up from baptism is debt-free. Not because they worked hard and paid it off, but because Jesus took it out of the way. You know how debt just gets in the way of everything. You can't enjoy anything. Spiritual debt stands between you and God. It stands between you and every other person in your life. And Jesus gets it out of the way. And I can't put it any better than Paul did. He's taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Christians in this room... And I'm with you. I, I just pray that we would be captivated by Jesus Christ. He canceled our debt. He forgave our transgression. He made us alive. He moved us from the. He removed the body of flesh from us. He performed spiritual baptism in our hearts. We should be so captivated by that. And I pray that we will this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just the power that's in there and the truth that's in there. And Lord, I pray that we would be captivated by Jesus, that we would let go of our of our concern and overemphasis of everything else over and above Jesus. And I confess that that has to be a supernatural work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. That we can't by willpower make that happen. So I just pray that you would do that for us. That you would do that for me. And I pray that you would baptize all of our hearts. And I pray for those who are sitting here thinking back to their physical baptism and thinking, was that, was that legit? Was, 
do I need to rethink this? I pray that you would give them wisdom, draw them into your word to figure out what you would have them do. But Lord, mainly I just thank you. I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for the freedom and forgiveness that you've given us from him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.